0: Thanks to the pipers for their big help today, and they're a blessing to have. And uh, and all the folks who do music is just a blessing. Um, to have that, First Kings, chapter three in your Bibles, one and a half verses tonight. First Kings three, we're just buzzing through this passage. Uh, First Kings three, it says of Solomon, he had seven hundred wives, princes, princesses, and three hundred concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. We'll stop there. The late pastor, theologian Warren Weersby, pastor pastored Moody Church in Chicago. He died in 2019. But he once told a story of two ladies. I'm going to call this the tale of two women. He he was called by one of the ladies in his church. He, she said, "I'd like you to come by the house. I want to I want to visit with you." And so he he went over and this first woman uh invited him into her home. It was a very large home, and the first thing he noticed was how beautiful the home was. It was obviously it was opulent, expensive, very nice. Yes. And she uh before getting down to business why she wanted him come by and visit with her. Um, she said, "I'd like to take you on a tour of the house." And so they walked from room to room in this very large, expensive home and saw the wallpaper. And she pointed out the different kinds of wallpaper and, and what made the wallpaper special, and the wood trim, and the expensive pieces of furniture. And when the host, uh, when the host finished the tour, uh, she had commented on every painting, every piece of furniture. I mean, this was the grand tour. Of the estate home. Then they sat down for some light refreshments. And after they had had the refreshments. Which were also very nice. Very tasteful. The woman addressed why she wanted to speak with her pastor. This is what she said. She said that she had in the previous week. While she was out in the community. She had seen another woman. This is woman number two. She had seen another woman entering a local movie theater. She was letting her pastor know how upset she was that this other woman was so worldly. <laughs> how can we have a worldly woman like this in our church? Well, Pastor Wearsby apparently sat back. You can hear him tell the story if you know his voice. He kind of said he kind of sat back, and he looked at her, and he said, "She's not worldly. You're worldly. She's carnal, and there's a difference." And it it just kind of set him up to explain to her the difference between those two things, but it shut her up too <laughs> in her complaints against this other woman. But it, this tale of two women perfectly illustrates the difference between worldliness. And carnality, according to Wearsby's story, carnality, that's doing things that feeds our flesh. It's carnal. The word carnal is the word flesh. Worldliness is different. It's loving and caring for things of the world. The woman going to the movie may have been carnal, but without a doubt, the host, the first woman, was worldly. Because of the way she showed off her house, demonstrating that she loved the world. She loved the things of the world. I think Weirsby's tale demonstrates something that's fairly common in the American church. That is, we've grown so accustomed to the things of the world that we've allowed a desire for them, maybe even sinfully so, to become common also. We can argue that carnality is wrong and fight against that. And I think there are a lot of Christians who, uh, especially out of the end of the 20th century, what's called cultural fundamentalism, came up with a lot of do's and don'ts. And a lot of that, I think, with great intentions was to fight against carnality. But I think there was very little ever discussed about fighting against worldliness, so much so that I think for many Christians, when they think of worldliness, they think of the realm of Satan. We'll talk about all of this in just a moment. What they don't think about is the things of the world. John, the apostle, wrote this. Stop loving the world. He was not talking about the world against God, the simple world. He was talking about the things of the world because he said, stop loving the world, even the things that are in the world. He says specifically what this world is. It's the world that appeals to our flesh, our eyes, and the pride of life. If you think about worldliness then, you come to recognize how pervasive this problem is. In fact, I'd like to propose that the way we look at worldliness in the contemporary church, is demonstrative in the way we look at Solomon versus Samson. Generally, when we think of Samson, we think bad. And when we think of Solomon, we think good. And I think Samson was pretty carnal. I mean, uh, Samson violated his vows on multiple occasions. He wanted to feed his flesh. He sought the services of a Philistine prostitute named Delilah. She was, I guess, wicked enough that her name is synonymous with that profession. He married 700 wives. Samson judged Israel for 20 years. Solomon was a pretty good king, but he sinned too. And maybe if God had judged Solomon by gouging his eyes out, that is direct judgment, Instead of indirect judgment. And he did judge Solomon indirectly. Because he took away the kingdom from him. I want you to stop for a moment and think about this. In the days of David the king. Who is set up as the perfect example of what a king should be. After David dies and Solomon becomes king. Because of Solomon's worldliness. Within the short years. Maybe two or three, after his death, the great kingdom of David that was expanded by Solomon was reduced to five cities. Five. It was almost completely destroyed. In fact, by the time you get to Hezekiah, who was an awfully good king, by the way, by the time you get to Hezekiah, the Solomonic kingdom is reduced to just Jerusalem and, and actually, the city is surrounded by an Assyrian army. <coughs> Solomon, God says, because of Solomon's sins, he said, I will take the kingdom away from you, not all of it, because of your father, David. I would argue that by the end of Solomon's life, he's no better than King Saul. In fact, he, we, we criticize Saul for going to see the witch of endor and we neglect to criticize solomon for erecting monuments to gods such as molech the the terrible horrible assyrian god that uh, the worship of whom is so gruesome i will not go into detail about it samson yes carnal fleshy but he was certainly no worse than solomon but the fact that we view Solomon so positively, I think, is evidence of the fact that we've kind of tolerated worldliness in the contemporary church. And so I think we should consider in the collapse of Solomon to, that his collapse was where he crumbled under the weight of his own worldliness. Number one, worldliness is a desire to have this world, You have to put it into that parameter. It says here in verse three, Solomon had, he had, he possessed, acquired like property, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, when we use the word world, there are four uses of the word that are biblical. Let me just kind of walk you through this. Worldliness can refer to created things. In John's gospel, he uses the word world the most. In John 12, 25, Jesus said, John quotes him, he that loves his life shall keep it. He that hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. All right, did you get that? So he's talking about this world, this earth, the created earth. In fact, Jesus said in John 18, 37, my kingdom, or verse 36 rather, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not part of. Of this planet. It can refer to created things. It can refer to a community of people. In John 7, verse 4, John writes, There is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. That is, reveal yourself to this community of people around you. In John 12, 19, the Pharisees said among themselves, Do you see how we prevail nothing? The whole world has gone after Jesus. That is, the community of people have gone after Jesus. Even sometimes it refers to mankind, all of mankind. God so loved the world. It's not referring to just a community of people. It's not referring to created things. It means mankind. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of mankind. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 12, 47. If any man hears my words, but does not believe me, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, uh, but to save the world. So he's talking about mankind. Finally, it can refer to the world opposed to God. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, Jesus said, but me it hates because I testify of it. In 1 John 3, 1, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God? Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. All right, so did you catch this? There is a world that refers to created things. That's the ball of the earth. That's stuff, okay? That's the world. There's a world that refers to a community of people. We would, in some sense, be called a world of people. That's kind of the idea here. And then there's a world that's talking about all mankind. And then there's the world that's opposed to God, opposed to Jesus. The world hates Jesus. It's talking about that world, that group of people, that philosophy. I'll never forget getting off a ride at Disney World. And I saw a little button that says, love the world. And of course, 1 John 2 runs through my mind. Love not the world, right? It's just kind of cute. I thought I should get this button. I could wear it to church. (laughs) Love the world. Well, God loved the world. And you want to confuse people without seeing these distinctions in definitions. You say, God says uh, that he loves the world, but he tells me not to love the world. Well, ah, that's confusing. Well, of course, there's distinctions between these things. So when we talk about worldliness, we're not talking about a community of people. I am not saying you should not love people. And I am not talking about mankind. I am not saying you should not love mankind. I do think it would be problematic if you loved sinful, evil things and a philosophy that goes against God. That would be weird. But I think when we talk about worldliness, we're talking about stuff. And so I'm going to say it this way. God's people should not desire to possess the world like worldly people do. You know, know, what Solomon's doing here in acquiring these wives is what the pagan kings around him did. It kind of gives you a sense of what worldliness is, okay? So the pagan kings who acquired all these wives, there was one Egyptian king, he had 3,000 wives. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, we think 700 wives, 300 concubines is crazy enough. 3,000, I mean, that's overkill. Uh, uh, Typically, I know they were done for treaties. There were political reasons behind them. But but ultimately, what's happening here is Solomon, he's seeing how the kings around him are in acquiring these wives. And he's saying, I'd like to be like that too. That's kind of the mindset of worldliness. It says, "I, I really need to pattern my life, my behavior, my philosophy, my goals, in in the same way that unsaved people do in acquiring things, in possessing things, in living for things. Moses said that the Jewish kings were not to multiply wives to themselves. I quoted for you in the past, Deuteronomy 17, 17, where the kings were said, Do not acquire wives, do not acquire horses, do not acquire silver or gold. Solomon violated all three of those. But instead, it says there in Deuteronomy 17, you're to have a copy of the law sitting next to you on your throne. If Solomon had obeyed that part of it, he could have picked up the law. He could have opened up the scroll and he could have read the, the words that said, do not do what you are doing. But apparently he didn't follow that either. So as you understand where we're going with this, worldliness is not a love for mankind, not a love for a community of people. It's not even primarily a love for things that are evil, that hate God and go against God. It's just a love for created things. And let me ask you a question. Be honest with yourself. Do you have that love? Do you love created things? It'd be kind of weird if you didn't have it somewhere in your heart. It'd be a little strange if somewhere you wouldn't say, I I kind of do like material things. It doesn't mean to be worldly. Does not mean worldliness isn't wealthy? Worldliness isn't the same as being blessed. It means you're in love with the world's things. Worldliness is materialism. Ladies and gentlemen, worldliness is a love for a house. Just like our lady in the tale of the two ladies. It's a love for a house. It's a love for a car. It's a love for possessions. It's a love for a savings account. It's a love for dirt. It's what Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress called the muckraker. The guy who was just Raking the dirt. That's what we're talking about. A love for those things. I think it also probably is a love for personal qualities like physical traits and abilities. Things that are personal to you. But let's be honest. Are you worldly? Because if you are, I'm going to tell you there's spiritual danger for you ahead. This is point number two. Worldliness is spiritually harmful because it is a desire that influences other desires. Worldliness is kind of like a chief desire. This is why the Apostle Paul said the love of money is a root of evil. It's, it isn't that the love of money is from which all evil springs. Unfortunately, the King James translation gives you that impression. Actually, in the original language, it just says, the love of money is a root of evil. It's, it's from this that springs uh, evil. And it is a desire that influences others' desires. You see in verse 3 at the end, it says his wives turned away his heart. You see, Solomon's desire was to have the world, and that desire turns the heart. In fact, the word turn here it is the word used in Numbers 22 to refer to Balaam's donkey. Do you remember the donkey? Balaam's on, on this donkey and the, the donkey uh, pulls to the right, pulls to the left, finally gets to a place where there's an angel. He can't go anywhere and he kind of sits down. Well, the idea of the donkey turning is that we have turning away the heart. It's used to refer to Samuel's sons who turned aside after money, who were so worldly themselves that they wanted money more than to judge the people of God. And so in this sense, these pagan women turned the heart of Solomon away. They were influencing him. He was not influencing them. I know there are sometimes people think, if if I just create these connections with worldly people, I can be an influence to them. And I'm all for that. But I think we have to be very careful that sometimes we say that as an excuse because by being friends with them, we gain something from them. We get some kind of worldliness back. This is a wrong desire multiplying into more wrong desires. Solomon should never have had these wives. Do you see this, the steps here? He, he's, he marries. He marries again and again and again and again and again. Hundreds of times. The wives are his initial worldly desire. That's the initial desire. But they turn his heart. Solomon, because of those wor- the worldliness in desiring and acquiring those wives, Solomon goes to places he never would have gone originally. He ends up at a place he never would have ended up at originally. This is why it's so critical for us to realize That when we tolerate worldliness in our hearts, we're opening ourselves up to desires we never would have sought before we were worldly. We never would have wanted to go that direction. And his wives caused him to disobey. His wives are influencing him. Well, it gets a little bit worse because it says in verse four, it came to pass when Solomon was old. So now we have a passage of time. There's a passage of time from the time Solomon begins the acquiring of these wives. He has a worldliness in his heart that desires to be like the pagan nations around him. He goes and he starts taking in these wives for himself. He gets these wives, they turn his heart, and now notice when he's old, Solomon. This is a tragic statement. His wives turned his heart away after other gods. I want to tell you that this makes me just stop and scratch my head. I don't understand how any person who claims to be a follower of God can also be an idolater. I don't understand that. Now I know it's been popularized over the last 20 or 30 years. Maybe you've heard preachers preach this. We don't I don't preach this here. We don't we don't say this here, but there's this concept of heart idolatry and there's a definition that's been popularized. Anything that replaces God in your life is an idol. Well, I'm just going to tell you that's an unbiblical definition because the word idol itself has the concept of an image. I can give you a lot of reasons why I think it's unbiblical. There are some places in the New Testament that you might say, well, what about this? What about that? If you want to talk about it, I'm glad to take you through what I think those verses are actually teaching, but it is not heart idolatry. The the concept of heart idolatry begins in Ezekiel 14 and kind of comes out of that, that passage where it talks about the elders of Israel having idols in their heart, but the idols they had were actual idols. That is, they were actually following Molech. They were actually following Baal. It wasn't a car or a house or your boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, usually I hear this at camp uh, or at uh, or uh, some place where teenagers are being preached at. You know, because when you preach and you say you have an idol, it sounds horrible. I don't want an idol in my life. So um, I'm going to say I get get rid of that out of my life. Well. These aren't heart idols. These are real idols. <laughs> Solomon, it says. Follow them. So, so think about it this way. Okay, Solomon's worldly. So what? So what? Do he's worldly. So what? Do he has seven hundred wives. I mean, God says don't do it. He broke that, but we break God's laws. It doesn't end up in disaster. So what? Here's here's the so what. Worldliness is spiritually harmful because it's a desire that influences other desires, and in this case, some of those desires are evil, inherently evil. So if you're following the logic here of what's being said. It was, okay, Solomon did something he shouldn't have done. And by doing that, he opened himself up now to doing something he never would have done in the first place, which is actually bowing down to a false god and saying, you are my god. This is the one who built the temple. Do you see the irony, the horrible irony behind this? He built a temple. He, built, he had built the holy of holy place where they put the Ark of the Covenant. He had all of that constructed. David couldn't do it. Solomon did it. But when he was old, because of the worldliness in his heart and the steps that he took in following through that worldliness, that influenced him to a new desire that was inherently an evil desire that is common to unbelievers, to the wicked. And now, I want you to listen to this. This is critical. Solomon becomes the fool. And I can prove this case. Let's just stop for a second and turn over to Isaiah 44. Okay? Just a couple of passages here. Isaiah 44. Solomon becomes a fool. Look at verse 15. Isaiah 44, 15. He's talking about a guy who is an idolater. Uh, uh, Isaiah is kind of explaining idolatry here. He's talking about a guy who cuts down a tree, cuts down a cedar tree or or an oak tree or a cypress tree. And it says here, then he shall be for a man to burn. He will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he will kindle it and bake bread and he will make a God and worship it. And he makes a graven image and falls down. So he burns part thereof in the fire. And with part thereof, he eats flesh and roasts roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am i warm, I've seen the fire, and the residue thereof, he makes a God, even his graven image, and he falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, you are my God. Do you see how foolish this is? Solomon is mocking the idolers. okay? I go off into the woods, I grab myself my axe, right? <laughs> I cut down my tree, I got my tree, I cut off all the limbs and branches, and I've got this log. Then I take my log and I figure out where the center is and whack, I cut it in half. And I take this piece of the log. Maybe, no, maybe I should take this piece. No, I'll take this piece. I take this piece of the log and I cut it up into parts and I put it over a fire and I cook my bread or I cook my meat or whatever. And I go, oh, this is nice. This is really nice. This fire is keeping me warm. The logs, the burning logs are keeping me warm. And then with this piece of the log, remember I went back and forth. Why would I do that? Because it doesn't really matter. Because this is a log. It could easily be a fire log. But with this piece of the log, I'm going to strip off all the bark and I'm going to take my knife. I'm going to carve a little face, maybe like an eagle, Or maybe like some sort of animal or maybe like a snake. It doesn't really matter. I carve in it this log. Maybe I carve a Dagon that's half fish, half man. I carve a baal that's uh, the face of a man and the body of a bull. Whatever it is, I carve that into the log. And I'm really good at carving, by the way. And I'm beautiful. And I take it and I set it up and I cover it with gold and I cover it with silver. And then I bow down to it and I say, you, log, you are my God. You deliver me. Wait a minute, I just burned your brother in the fire to keep my hands warm. This is so stupid. That's idolatry. Jeremiah also makes the case go over to Jeremiah. This is a little more this is a little sadder than Isaiah. It's right after Isaiah Isaiah Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah 10 look at verse 7 he says. Who would not fear you, O King of Nations? He's talking about God. The Lord is great; the Lord is mighty. Who would not fear you? For to you it, it, it appertains. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations in all their kingdoms there is none like to you. They are altogether brutish and foolish, and and the stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spreads into plate; uh, spread into plates is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphrates. The work of workmen in the hands of the founder. Blue and purple is their clothing. They're all the work of cunning men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. And at his wrath, the earth trembles and the nations will be able to abide, will not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods that you have made, that uh, that have not made, these gods have not made the heaven and earth. Even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom. He hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings with rain. He brings forth the wind out of his treasury, treasures. Every man is brutish. And the word brutish there he says, You're a fool. Every man's a fool in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is a falsehood, and there is no breath. There's no breath in them. They're dead. They're nothing. It's, it's an inanimate object, folks, is what he's saying. They are vanity. They're, they're nothing. They're, they're just meaningless. And and um, and the work of errors in the time of their visitation, they shall perish. It, an idol is just nothing. This could be an idol. The piano could be an idol. Uh, anything could be an idol. It's just nothing. It's just a thing. Habakkuk 2 I won't read the verses. Verse 18 and 19 make similar point. Romans 1, 21 and 23 makes this point too. Worshiping the false gods, Solomon became like the world around him. He desired the world and he got everything the world offered him. But his desires were sinful desires themselves. And there's no way the desire to worship a false god can ever be considered neutral. Remember, we were talking about the affections and some affections are neutral. Some things are neutral. Idolatry is not neutral. Idolatry is evil. Solomon's affections have now been influenced. His heart has been turned away. His heart is going after false gods. He actually loved to go into the temples of the false gods and see all the things that he, by his own hands and wealth, had made. Wanting something I don't have and need that God has not provided. Solomon was coveting those things, and it's wrong. That heart is worldliness. Ladies and gentlemen, it leads to other moral failures. So what do you do? What can we do? Let me give you quickly six points. They're really simple. Number one, reevaluate why you're pursuing something. Why do I want that car? Why do I want that house? Why why do I want that vacation? Reevaluate why you're pursuing something. Reevaluate your budget. God may not have given it to you. We live in a world where people are happy to give you money. You know, uh, here, here's a lot of money for you. I, I just was almost sickened watching this commercial the other day where a person was talking about how uh, she needed an advance on her salary. And here was $500, almost $3. And I'm going, it's not $3. When you don't get $500 of your salary next week, you'll be sad. Reevaluate your budget. Number three, keep your possessions in perspective. They're dirt. All of it. Is just dirt. Number four, recommit them as God's things. My house is God's. My car is God's. My children are God's. My family is God's. Everything I have is his. It's his things. Number five, be generous with what God has provided for you. And number six, be thankful for what he's given to you. Those kinds of things really do challenge a worldly heart because Having stuff doesn't make you worldly. Some of the most worldly people I've ever met were people who had nothing. And some of the least worldly people I ever met were people who had a lot of things. Having stuff doesn't make you worldly. What makes you worldly is the pursuit of things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this.